Hey everybody, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I am your host, Philip Kasumu, and today I was over at WeWork to interview entrepreneur and advisor, Andrew Wainrich. Now, for those who don't know who Andrew is, Andrew is a social networking pioneer. He's founded seven tech startups, including Six Degrees, which was the world's first ever social network. He hosts a podcast called Predicting Our Future, where he interviews leading entrepreneurs to predict massive opportunities for the next generation of startup founders to change the world. He's currently the founder of startup educational launchpad, Andrew's Roadmaps, and he's the chairman of data analytics company, Indicative. He also advises a number of startups, including ClassPass and WayBetter. This was an awesome interview, guys. So many gems and so many key takeaways. And apologies in advance for the door slamming in the background. Um, we were at WeWork, as I said, and it was pretty busy that day. Um, so many key takeaways, guys. That's enough from me. Let's get straight into the show. Sanju, when you're at a, I usually say dinner party, but when you're at a WeWork meetup event, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, Andrew Weinrich, and I usually introduce myself as a serial entrepreneur. So vague. Do, do you delve in or you just leave it at that? Well, <laughs> when people ask me what I'm working on now, I talk about Andrew's Roadmaps, I talk about the podcast, Predicting Our Future, and I talk about Indicative. Uh, and then if we drill down further, I share about other companies that I'm involved in as uh, an advisor or, uh, or sometimes investor. Um, Depending on how deep we go, I guess. Right. Cool. So there is so much that I wanted to talk to you about, but you know, I just have to be mindful of the time. <laughs> um, so you've had multiple startups, as you've just mentioned. Um, you've exited a few businesses as well. So where did this kind of entrepreneurial spirit come from? Like, when did it start? You know, I think I've always wanted to do um, something on my own where I felt like the result of my efforts was building something. Mm. One was building something that I could point to and say, I built that. But I think there's also this uh, driving desire to feel like I made a difference. Right. A- and in the business context, I think about what are spaces, what are ways of doing business where I could be impactful, where I could reinvent the way people think about a problem. And so I've tried in my career to focus on opportunities where I thought I could be a part of getting people to rethink uh, an existing way of doing things. And I could, I could accomplish that by building a business that was in some way disruptive. Right. And like, how old were you when you like first had this realization or came to this? I mean, in college, I, I tried to, um, I, I tried to, to get going on entrepreneurial ventures, um, I should say unsu- unsuccessfully, <laughs> and um, and after school, um, I think I progressed through professions uh, that were not as interesting to me as I think I should have been in in the early part of my career. So I started in investment banking. Um, I tried to start a business while I was there right. or conceptualize a business while I was there. Uh, and then I became an attorney. Um, I went to law school. And then I think only after I had practiced for a couple of years did I find my footing. Actually, at the moment when I had the most debt, when I was probably <laughs> you know, least in a position to start a business. Yeah. Um, but I was progressing through these miserable jobs. Uh, did I come to a place where I said, you know, it's time to take a risk, and um, and I think I w- would be more likely to be successful if I was doing things that I was happy doing, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, I had at the end of law school I had big debt. Um, I had over a hundred thousand dollars of debt, wow. and um, and the slowest way to pay that off is to quit your job <laughs> and go without pay. But yeah. that was ultimately the decision that I made. So in 1995, you launched this app or this website at the time, Six Degrees, which was the first ever social network as far as I'm concerned or as far as I know. Uh, how did you do it? Where did the idea come from? 
And yeah. like, why did you decide to sell it? Yet? So we actually launched, I think, the following year. But the the idea, I think, was generated that year. Right. Um, so I was an attorney. Uh, I was general counsel of a small PC clone manufacturer in New York. And I had um, been involved with putting together a group that met in the evenings for the purpose of coming up with ideas because it seemed like something really exciting was going to happen on the web. Yeah. And, and this was 96. Yeah. And we began to refine our thinking about um, well, what kind of ideas were, would be exciting to do and what kind of ideas could we come up with where we would have a competitive advantage. Right. So. For example, someone came up with an idea, let's build a sports website, and uh, and we quickly came to the conclusion, it's possible we could be dis be a leading player in sports content, but there were existing brands offline, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, exactly, yeah. that would have a competitive advantage uh, on us. And so we quickly, um, we, we, we quickly gravitated around this notion of, well, what's gonna be unique on the web is user-generated content. Can we compile information that was heretofore impossible to compile because everyone wasn't connected. Right. And I came up with this idea that if we could index everyone's relationships in a single database, mm -hmm. then uh, I could see through my first degree, I could peer through my first degree to my second degree. And in fact, that's the way networking has occurred since the beginning of time. So mm -hmm. the, the way that I find a doctor is I say, who do I know that knows a doctor? Yeah. The way people date often is they say, who do I know that knows someone yeah. for me? Uh, the way people find a handyman or, or, or extend themselves beyond their immediate circle is fundamentally, you look to your first degree and from your first degree you get to your second. Right? Your second degree is your first degree squared barring overlaps. Mm. So that's a tremendous number of people. If you know 400 people and they each know 400 people, your second degree is 160,000 people barring yeah. overlaps. And that concept of indexing relationships in a single place was never possible before everyone all of a sudden had the ability to index in a single database. Right. And so um, I proposed that idea to the group. The group wasn't willing to quit their jobs. So I quit the group and quit my job wow. and, um, and then started Six Degrees. Um, and we filed actually a patent on uh, on what that that notion of a social network was, which was the, both the indexing of relationships, the process by which they were indexed. So I would list you as a relationship. You would confirm both that we had a relationship, right? The relationship could be friend, mother, brother, fa father, sister, business contact. We came up with these classifications for a definition of a relationship. The person being uh, identified would confirm the relationship and be indexed in the database. And then you would be able to see uh, use that relationship to peer beyond what I'm calling your first degree. And if you think about what a social network is, that is a social network. Yeah. The core of every social network is uh, a contact manager. Mm -hmm. And so we really did a great deal of pioneering work there and built, I think, what was, you know, the largest um, uh, community, certainly social network. Um, of, of its time. That's crazy. So you actually filed a patent for social network. So we, that patent today is owned by LinkedIn. LinkedIn, you know. They bought it off you? Uh, well, we sold the company and um, that patent was purchased by um, the principals behind, um, actually, a, a few different people, but it was ultimately, I think, transferred to LinkedIn, now owned by Microsoft. So I think the Microsoft bought LinkedIn. Uh, so the seminal patent in the space, um, the Six Degrees patent, yeah, I think is now owned. It's prob probably part of Microsoft's patent. Portfolio. But I mean, obviously, it doesn't. It's not, it's not worth anything, right? I mean, it, what, why do you say it's not worth anything? Because I can. I mean, I did have a social network as well at one point, and I didn't have a patent for it. You know, yeah. and the premise so, is the same as you said. So um, it, it's interesting. Um, I don't know how to answer your question whether it's, it's worth saying. There was an interview I saw where um, someone asked Reid Hoffman whether he thought it was the most valuable patent in the world. Um, patents are valuable based on their ability to be enforced and the desire to enforce them. Right. Uh, unless they're being used in a defensive capacity. Sure. So I think, you know, 
the acquirers of the patent were principally focused on making sure that it was never used offensively against them. And I'm just guessing. Right. Um, but, and, you know, there are lots of good actors and bad actors in the patent world. It just so happens, um, Reed Hoffman's a good actor. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he made, you know, they never used, to my knowledge, they never used the patent offensively. Sure. Um, now, could the patent be used offensively in the future? I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, my gut is, no, that patent is worth a fortune. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. And like, so you're not, you don't come from a technical background. I mean, you're, you are a lawyer. So I don't come from a technical background. Who built this? Uh, how did you convince them to build this? So um, we found engineers. Right. And, um, and the, there were two guys that built this, actually three guys that built this originally. Justin Green, David Haber, and, um, and Cliff Rosen. Uh, and they were just razor sharp guys that um, bought into the dream right. that we could be disruptive. It was an exciting time. Um, and they wanted to share in, um, in some type of participation or ownership of, right. of um, what we were doing. And how big did this actually get? I mean, we sold... We, I mean, the the price, the, the sale price was publicly reported. It was it was over a hundred million dollars. Right. Um, I mean, we had millions of members. Now, wow. keep in mind, this is nice six. Yeah. Keep in mind, you know, one of the challenges of Six Degrees was, um, you know, our claim was if you join Six Degrees, you could connect to everyone in the world. Mm. But not everyone in the world was on the internet. Yes. Not everyone in the world knew what the internet was. Yeah. Right. So, um, so the numbers were. I mean, today you talk about, you know, I have 100 million members, I have 200 million members, like you hear about, not I, you hear about, you know, the numbers that they Snapchat or an Instagram yeah. or in the case of Facebook, billions. I mean, there weren't, um, you know, there weren't a billion people on the internet yeah. when, we, when, we, when we started. So, um, but we, we had millions of members. And did you guys do fundraising round? Was this bootstrapped? Uh, I raised a little over $25 million through the course of the company. For the first year, um, it was brutal. I mean, we were on my credit cards. I think wow. we raised $25,000. Um, it was a very, very, it was very, very difficult to raise capital at the outset. Yeah. I mean, we had no track record. And, and I mean, I remember pitching, I mean, one thing I always tell people when they're pitching prospective investors is uh, pitch people that have domain expertise in what you're doing. To some extent, people find it counterintuitive, right? Yeah. New entrepreneurs, it's, you're starting a business and you're focused on pet food. Why would you target investors that have previously invested in other pet food companies? Maybe they would even, you worry, maybe they would even take my information. And mm -hmm. But the level of education you have to provide investors is diminished if they have prior experience investing. Now, think right. back to Six Degrees. When I was pitching people for money, and I was pitching, remember, the venture capital ecosystem was not as robust here as it was in the Valley, so yeah. it was, there were fewer, far, far fewer venture capital firms. Yeah. So you were pitching largely high net worth people. My pitch to them was, well, let me tell you what I'm doing with Six Degrees. And then for most of them, I had to spend 30 minutes explaining to them what the internet was. Uh. And as a result, I had this massive amount of wasted time where yeah. I was pitching huge numbers of people explaining to them what the internet is, what's the promise of the internet, yeah. why are internet companies exciting. Mm -hmm. And if I had the benefit of pitching people that had previously invested in community yes. sites, I think the process would have been dramatically shortened. Maybe not, maybe I was, you know, maybe when I was getting going, I was delivering a very bad pitch. Yeah. But um, So ultimately you're saying when you're pitching an investor, make sure they have the domain expertise. The, the, the likelihood of someone writing you a check goes up exponentially if they have previously invested in your space. Right. Like I tell entrepreneurs that are getting going, put together a list of all the companies you know of that you think are even tangentially related to what you're doing, that are yeah. competitors. Go to Crunchbase, find all of their investors, yeah. and that's your target list. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to running for those people, those are the people you should be yeah. hitting up. Yeah, that makes sense. So then, okay, so you sell this business, $100 million, you know, 
Woohoo. <laughs> do you, and so you obviously go on to do other ventures. At the time, were you thinking, look, I'm pretty good at this thing. Let's see how many I can do. Were you like, hmm, I might take a break. Like, what were, what were your thoughts after you, you know, everything was all said and done? Um, well, you know, it, it's funny. You're, um, uh, you're from London. Um, I actually was, uh, I, I, I was very excited about um, what I was going to do next. And I mm. was in London and I was in a very bad um, car accident. Oh, no. I looked the wrong way crossing the street uh, and a truck came by and I fractured my skull in five places. And Jesus. so I took off some time after selling the business. Um, and it sort of re, um, required a readjustment of what I was thinking about doing mm. and, and what would be, um, what would be exciting to do. But, um, but I wanted to start, you know, other businesses where I thought, um, I had disruptive ideas right. and so um, came back and started another business businesses businesses <laughs> yeah so you started um, Xtify and Meet Moi well I started two businesses before that oh okay one of which um, was a failure um, which one what business was that was that? called Joltage right I couldn't find that one the idea behind Joltage was um it was, I was a big believer that um, you know, in every corporate setting, everyone was moving to Wi-Fi on their laptops. Yeah. And, and the, the change was dramatic. Like oh, what year was this, by the way? 2001. Okay. Uh, so I had this idea that there would be Wi-Fi in every public place, but in order for there to be Wi-Fi in every public place, someone needs to build the back-end infrastructure to allow for that. The backend infrastructure is what we call an operational support system. That's part of the backend infrastructure right. that would allow you to provision bandwidth, authenticate users. And so we built a business around bringing Wi-Fi to public places, hotspots, hotels, coffee shops, airports. Um, and that business ultimately went under. And uh, for a host of interesting reasons. But How long were you working on it for before you? A couple of years. I mean, we probably had 15, 16 people. Raise money or? Uh, yeah, raise money. Wow. Um, all engineers, not all engineers, mostly engineers. Then I started a business uh, that was one of the first companies to offer um, campaign in a box solutions, online fundraising, because I believe that online fundraising would change and that political candidates would raise money in smaller amounts on the internet as opposed to, you know, in a cigar, cigar filled room with crowdfunding, basically. Fat cat, you know, funders. So, um, and we sold that business, and then I started Xtify and Meetwa. Meetwa first, then Xtify. Wow. And I, I those, uh, I had a co-founder who's actually my uh, partner now on Indicative. Right. Just going back to the failed business, um, so you were working on that for a few years. I assume you're making a loss for those years. Well, we lost the, the yeah, I mean, I don't, on a personal level, it's not like I'm, I'm drawing uh, um, large salaries for any of these yeah, businesses. Sure. So, um, so those people that invested equity capital, yeah. um, if you have a failed business, lose their money. Yeah. So I guess during that time, what made you think, wow, was that, was that your first experience? That wasn't obviously your first experience failing because you had failed before at college, right? But did you think at that point, Maybe I should just, you know, quit. No, because I had done it before, and and and, you know, it's funny. I guess the stakes were a bit higher now, right? Because you were dealing with other people's money. Well, we dealt with other people's money with six degrees. We yeah. had, you know, I mean, uh, the six. We had many experiences at six degrees where it was, you know, we're a month being out of money, we're wow. two weeks from being out of money. You know, I I think the nature of a startup is, um, you're on the cusp of disaster until you cross the finish line. Yeah. <laughs> and so and you cross the finish line in different ways, you yeah. know, but but you're you're always on the cusp of disaster until you cross the finish line. I shouldn't say that's true for all startups, but that's true for most high tech startups. Right. Uh, I should say tech startups. It's probably a better way to put it. Mm. Uh, um, and so um, no, I think, you know, I I mean there there are I believed 
uh, I believed it, 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 that I had the ability, both before Jaltage and after, to imagine situations where, um, where I could see things or I could construct things in a way that was unique. And I also believe that I had the ability to marshal the resources and to inspire people and to create momentum where there otherwise was none and build businesses. So, no, I think, you know, when you have a failure, you lick your wounds, Yeah. you know, and you get back on the horse. Yeah, very true. And so then the other two businesses that you started were, again, quite ahead of their time because you use location-based services to provide a service. We built location-based mobile dating before the iPhone. Yeah, I mean, like, how? <laughs> we, we, we literally were reverse triangulating the... We, we were... There were there were databases that listed... Um, or you could compile your own database mm. that listed latitude longitude of towers and, and you could read off the device um, the towers that a phone was corresponding with and essentially reverse triangulate the position of a phone that's insane and so we were reversing we were identifying the location of a phone um, and then offering initially the first incarnation of the dating service was um, was text messaging only there was no graphical um, you know, the the graphical interface I think came later, and, and so you guys built the Tinder for texting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean the, well, well, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, where where Tinder really pioneered was in um, in the user interface. Right? Yeah, I mean, what they did was was they they took a concept that had existed before them, mm. uh, hot or not that had seen a great deal of success, the founders had a successful exit, and they essentially figured out a very clever way to use that construct um, of hot or not in a very clever interface. Yeah. And, and you know, obviously did phenomenally well. Yeah. But it's not even clear to me, you know, I mean, I've never used, uh, I, I never used Tinder, but, but, um, but it's not even clear to me whether or not the activity on Tinder is really location based, in mm. other words, hyper location based, yeah. or whether it's you know general. What we were trying to do was, when we started, was much more. Let's identify two people that are proximate to one another. We'll even plug into a third party database to tell them a location to meet that's you know equidistant from them, and it was more temporal. Um, so, yeah, but I. I I wish I wish we had the you know the exit of Tinder. Yeah, <laughs> um, you got exit on the least. Um, but so you were the chairman of both of these companies at the same time. How did you operate two startups that went on to be very successful at the same time? Because you know startups today are always told focus on one thing and do that well. You can't have too many plates spinning at the same time. Yes, one startup's tough enough. So how did you manage to do the two? So you know. I was not the CEO of each. Right. So the, the role that, and I was initially the CEO of, of each. Um, I was originally the CEO of Mimois. We hired a CEO for Mimois. Then I was the chairman of Mimois and the CEO of Xtify. And then we hired a CEO for Xtify. So I'm a big believer that companies move aggressively yeah. when they're benign dictatorships. In other words, there's gotta be a CEO who makes decisions. The board loses faith in the CEO. The board fires the CEO, but you don't make decisions by committee. Yeah, a and so we hired CEOs who were the CEOs. wasn't Andrew was the CEO. Andrew's, you know, micromanaging the situation and telling the CEO do this, do that. We mm -hmm. hired CEOs that were free thinkers and that commanded the attention and the um and the direct reporting of all the people that worked for both of them right and i work closely with the ceos uh, but i empower the ceos to make decisions and to lead those companies right and but then i worked very close with them on strategy and on thinking through on the high know, level things on the high level things and, and but even to the point where you know i physically worked there and i had an office with them and so and i divided my time you know mm. 50 50 but what what I was able to do was say I could play a chairman role, support these people. The board oversees these people. I was the chairman of the board, yeah. and I would work more closely with them than that. Yeah. But ultimately, they were responsible with driving the businesses. 
And the other thing I was able to do was capitalize the businesses um, before they joined. So not fully, you know, they each raised additional capital while they were there, but um, but they weren't coming in with zero dollars in the bank. Right. And obviously these companies grew very quickly. How were you marketing these products? You know, during the time well, they were totally different businesses. Yeah. Right? They had no connection. The only connection they had to one another. So let's let's. Focus on Meatwa. How was that growing? How were you marketing that? I mean, Meatwa was, was dating businesses are principally direct marketing businesses. Right. So there's a direct marketing team, you know, that is spending money on different channels. Uh, you know, they're aggressively looking at what's the cost of acquisition, what's the lifetime value of the users, how do I optimize against churn? Sure. And so that was that business. Xtify, from a marketing and sales perspective, um, Xtify was a was B2B. Yeah, B2B. So we uh, we had a head of sales and um, and that head of sales was, you know, built a team under him and he was aggressively uh, targeting, um, well, initially smaller businesses and then we realized the real opportunity was in large enterprises and he began to target much larger enterprises. And where he was very effective was um, the there was at the time that we were doing XFI not only were we saying look we can be unique in grabbing location off the device and then marketing to customers <laughs> but this whole notion of using push notifications as a channel for corporate communications was new Yeah, and so he was very effective at saying to large corporations we can deliver for you there aren't a lot of competitors in the space there were some but there are not a lot of competitors in the space we can, we have a fairly unique offering. We can deliver this ability for you to supplant your SMS channel or complement your SMS channel with push notifications. Right. Um, and he was very successful in bringing in a, a lot of um, large, large enterprises, like wow. Fortune 500 enterprises as clients. Wow. And then eventually you sold. We sold that to IBM. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was huge. That must have been huge. It, that was a very uh, that was a very very exciting experience and and a very um, just very rewarding to have one of the largest technology companies say your technology suite would plays a role in what <laughs> yeah. we envision the larger ecosystem of um, of the marketing products that we IBM should be offering. It was wow. very rewarding. Wow. And then after that, you went on to, did you take a break for a while? Well, so when we sold Meet Moi, we, um, this, the co-founder uh, was the CTO. Right. Uh, this guy, Jeremy Levy, uh, and I said, look, there's some, something really interesting here in understanding the analytics of this business. Right. And that, as I mentioned before, dating businesses are principally direct marketing businesses. Yeah. Um, what are the other direct, what are the other opportunities for us if we were to build an analytics business? And so we decided um, we would start this company called Indicative, where Indicative, again, would target some very large enterprises. But one of the big challenges in enterprises today is they have so many uh, data sources that are almost exist in silos. Right. And you think about all the marketing opportunities, whether they're marketing from a social, you know, their, their, their marketing efforts are on, these are let's say B2Cs, uh, whether their efforts are on um, uh, social acquisition, uh, paid acquisition, uh, and by platform, whether they're acquiring users or subscribers sure. on iPhone or Android or yeah. desktop. And then this challenge of unifying all of that data and using that data to inform all the decisions that a business faces. Mm. So how do you modify your product so that you're able to keep users for a longer period of time? How do you modify your product so the users are more engaged while they're there? How do you create, how do you use data to prescribe exactly what you should be doing? And yeah. so we built a platform um, which does that, but I think more importantly, where we're, the idea was where indicative would stand out is we would democratize that data so it would be available to users within large enterprises that are not on data teams. Right. And that's been the focus of um, indicative. Your most recent, one of your most recent projects. So I just want to shift gears a bit and talk about some of the things you're doing now with, you know, Andrew's roadmap. Um, 
So I watched one of your videos. You know, you're kind of like a startup consultant guru right now. Um, and on one of the videos entitled, um, or titled rather, when should you quit your job? Um, and during that video, you said something that um, people should create business plans and financial projections. Um, and I just wanted to know, what did you mean by that? Was that they should create business plans for themselves or for fundraising purposes? For themselves. Because for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean the, 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 the reality is startups are really hard and they take a really long period of time. Right. Years, years and years. Like you should not expect to start a business and not exit and exit before seven years, 10 yeah. years. Yeah. <clears throat> and a lot of people don't appreciate that. And a mm. lot of people don't appreciate that everything takes longer than you expect. Yeah. So the, the, the people by and large that turn out to be successful, they're not always the smartest people. Yeah. They're the people that have the persistence, mm. the right level of both arrogance and humility mm. to just keep going. Yeah. And so what I say to people is you should put together a business plan. So at least you're framing for yourself what you think you are going to be doing. Right. And then you have the ability to frame for yourself, well, when do you think you're going to be able to receive outside financing? Or when do you think you're going to be able to cash flow a business? And do, yeah. Or do you have the wherewithal to go without pay for three months, six months, a year? Yeah. And if you don't have the discipline to do a business plan, it's not likely you're going to have the discipline to go 10 years on a business. So... Um, so you can begin, when you think about quitting your job, you can begin to, to see, am I someone who has the discipline to go through the obvious steps? Mm. And am I someone who has the discipline to begin, uh, I don't need to, let me put this, let me start that over. I don't need to reinvent everything. I need to be an inventor of one thing. Yeah. And, but I should follow best practices for how I engage in starting a business, how right. I operate, how I hire, how I market, how I think about financing. And so, you know, a big piece of it is, is it's just like, you know, if you're going to, if, if you're going to run a marathon, you don't wake up one day and run the marathon, yeah, you start train. by training. Yeah. And, you know, maybe the moment when you pay your hundred dollar admission fee or your ticket for the marathon <laughs> is when you're already running. 20 miles a week, right? Yeah. When you're running four miles a day for five days, at that point you go, you know what? I think I'm actually going to be able to do this. Yeah. The reason why I asked that question was because I've spoken to so many different entrepreneurs and founders and investors. And a lot of the founders I've spoken to, I was like, oh, don't waste your time writing a business plan. You know, it's going to change soon enough. You're going to put it in the bin soon because startups, we have to iterate, you know, you have to pivot every now and again. So do you think writing the plan... That's crazy. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. Like, and, really? and the reason that's crazy is because Iterate from where. It's incredibly helpful to memorialize what you're thinking today. Like, you don't need, every business plan doesn't need to be pretty. Every business plan doesn't need to be exactly, you know, 15 slides or 20 slides, or maybe it's written, maybe you're recording what you're doing. But yeah. the notion that you're gonna, you're gonna, you don't memorialize what you're doing now, right. um, I think is crazy. And, and I'll, I'll take it one step further. It is very difficult when you're starting and you're building a product to say, let me think through how I'm going to market it or sell it or right. price it or who's going to be my partners from a business development perspective. Right. It's very difficult to actually say, I'm going to think through all of these things that are not pressing on me right now. Yeah. And so it's easy to forget about them. Yeah, it's and, true. and you know, so and it doesn't take a lot of time to actually write down what your thinking is on all of these different topics. So yeah. no, I think you know, I get it. There are people that you know wrote down on the back of an envelope what they're going to do, but um, but that's not the best way to proceed. Yeah. yeah, just need to work towards wrapping up because I'm getting some eyeballs on me. <laughs> we work. Um, so you're advisor to a multitude of startups at the moment. ClassPass, way better. What are some of the most common themes you've seen or some of the common issues you've seen within startups that you can I, I mean, talk I think what them? you said before was dead on is, is people that are unbelievably resilient right. uh, do very well. And, you know, ClassPass had a significant pivot. Um, 
you know, they started as Classtivity where, where they were not on a subscription model. Yeah. And, but the founder is just a superstar. And so she was able to again and again say, well, what am I learning from what's out there and how do I adjust? Yeah. And same thing with the founder of, of Way Better, which yeah. is the one who offers Diet Pet. Uh, um, just, you know, incredibly resilient, um, incredibly uh, grounded about where he is, what's working, what's not, and constantly modifying to make things work. Yeah. Awesome. And so I guess your latest project as well, Andrew Roadmaps. Which Andrew, is Andrew's roadmap. Andrew's roadmap. Beg your pardon. Ultimately, like a crash course in startup. Well, I, I run this boot camp where, over the course of two days, uh, I run companies through best practices uh, associated with every discipline in the life cycle of a startup. So, right. how do you construct a business plan? How do you think about cash flow projections? How do you build a marketing plan, a sales plan, a product plan? How do you think about commissioning a sales force? How do you think about financing? Um, so we've had a, um, a good deal of success and fun with that program. Right. And it's two days. It's free. Uh, we, run the, we run two different versions of the program. One um, is a paid program and the other is they come to us through a competitive application process. Right. If it's the competitive application process, then um, those events are covered by sponsors. Okay. And what made you do this? What made you start this up? I mean, you're so busy. With I mean, I like things. working with startups. Um, I um, I like the idea that I can be helpful to the startups, and also I learn an immense amount from the startups. And what's interesting today is there's not a problem that someone somewhere is not working on. Right. And so it's very difficult to stay current mm. on the future. And. Uh, one of the things I offer is one of the things that I spend a lot of time on is this podcast um, called Predicting Our Future, where I talk about uh, spaces that are about to be reinvented. And the way I get smart on those spaces is by speaking with, in large part, startups and their founders and saying to them, what are you doing? And so I, I find it incredibly um, interesting. Um, incredibly enlightening speaking with people that are trying to change the world. And if yeah. you want to form your own perspective on a space, I find often the best way to do that is to just listen to these people. So the same that I'm teaching them, yeah. I'm also listening right. to what people are doing. So could you give me an example of a space you believe is going to be disrupted soon? So the first podcast that I um, covered, we did 29 interviews in this is for predicting our future. The first episode, we did 29 interviews uh, on modular and prefabricated construction in the residential space. So, what does that mean? So, in the United States, yeah. unlike um, unlike elsewhere around the world, most construction when you build a home, and we'll talk about apartments in a second, looks very similar to the way it did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Right? Sure. You have crew comes out and um, a lot of times if you're building a home they don't work for one another so the pl there's a plumber an electrician a framer someone who's grading the property pouring right. the foundation right. and that is in a time in 2017 where every other product imaginable um, from a paper clip to your phone to your eyeglasses to your watch is made in a factory yeah and so why aren't homes made in factories Interesting. And, um, and particularly in expensive areas where if you made it in a factory, you might be able to make it in an area where the labor is less expensive mm. and where you could use machinery and robotics and automate the process. Um, why is that the case? They're, they're not made in factories. Now, it turns out in some countries like Sweden, a majority of single family homes are made in factories. Wow. Um, in the UK, there is a tremendous amount of work going on right now. There's a real shorting, uh, housing shortage there is, in the UK. Yeah. And one of the big solutions to that is begin building housing in factories. In Japan, Toyota actually has a factory that makes houses. Wow. Uh, last year, I think they made 5,000 homes. Wow. Priced between two hundred dollars and $800,000. Wow. In the United States, because we've had an abundance of inexpensive labor, and we have parts of this country where we've got four seasons of warm weather, um, 
we have been much slower to build mm. modular housing. Now we have a lower cost, what we call HUD code housing, which is basically trailer homes. Uh, it's been a vibrant industry for, for years. Warren Buffett actually owns the largest HUD code home manufacturer. We call those manufactured homes. But in Brooklyn, this, this past year, in 2016, a 32-story building went up, 32 stories, and that was built in a factory with boxes that were just stacked on no. top of another. Yeah, wow! It's world's tallest modular building, right next to the Barclays Center. Oh, so what does the future hold? I mean, at some point in the future, we will see a massive movement towards building homes and apartments in factories in the United States, and that tipping point will be as exciting as. Tesla is exciting, yeah. right? And, and so, um, and that, you know, when you think about what are massive market opportunities, that's a massive opportunity. Yeah. So, so how can one get involved with that at this point? So, you know, you don't have to build a home to get involved in that, right? I mean, there are so many components of a home. Like, there's something called, this is just one example, there's something called sit panels that have been around forever. These are structural walls that are made in a factory. And, uh, and they can supplant literally, you know, when you build a house, if you ever see someone build a house, you know, you've got the frame, the, the frame on the four corners and then you've got studs, which are these, um, you know, vertical posts yeah. and, and then you put ex external and internal sheathing on, on the, a SIP panel just shows up from the factory and you just put four of these together and you've got a box. Oh, you know? right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I only mention that because if you think about just about every component of the home is being reinvented. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even talking about the connected home, which is something that I will be talking about in a future podcast. I'm just talking about all the materials yeah. and then the assembly of those. So there's a lot of um, opportunity for entrepreneurs in construction. So just have to work towards wrapping up now. Um, a few fireside questions. So favorite book? Truth is, most of my favorite books are uh, fiction. Oh, that's fine. It is the man. So, uh, you know, probably I've read almost every book Leon Uris has written. Uh, Sorry, who was that? Wrote Exodus, Mill 18. Okay. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and there are a lot of sort of historical fiction books I like. Um, and used to read a lot of biographies. So was a big fan of Truman by um, McCullough. I don't read that many business books. Interesting. Um, which, is, which is interesting in so much as all of my friends are constantly sending me business books to read. <laughs> but but, um, but Maybe I'm, they think you need it. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> um, okay, biggest inspiration? So, you know, I, I, find, I find inspiration... Um, I love reading about the successes of others. Right. I mean, the person that I'm probably closest to um, is my father, who humbles me, um, provides me, you know, perspective, uh, you know, or is a good sounding board for the ideas and the thoughts I have. Yeah. And was my attorney for many, many years. Wow. Um, but there's not one, you know, I don't have one particular mentor from a business perspective. Mm. I mean, what I try to do is have a lot of close friends that have had a lot of success as a serial entrepreneurs that I'm able to bounce ideas off. Right. That's actually a good point, actually. So you've never had an official mentor? I've never had a business mentor. Right. No. no. I, I, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in, uh, in trying to learn from others. Yes. But... Um, but the way I've done that is tried to build a very large circle of serial entrepreneurs that, that have experienced problems similar to mine and right. that I can talk through, uh, you know, if it's, a, uh, if it's an issue that I, most of the issues you face as, a, as an entrepreneur, someone else has faced before. Yeah, that's true. Okay, and finally, what's the one piece of advice you usually or generally give to startups? I know each startup is different, but if you could say like general advice, what's the one piece of advice you would give to a startup? I always talk with startups about how important it is to be a thought leader. Mm. I always talk with people about even when you get going on a business, 
Smart investors know that your specific idea is not likely to work as you've articulated it. Right. And so what they're investing in is you. Yeah. And they're investing in your ability to see a situation and then to modify or pivot from that situation as appropriate. Sure. You can't do that if you're not a thought leader. You can't do that if you don't have a perspective about, well, where is housing going to go generally? Mm. Or where is... What is, what is the future of how people are going to use data or how do people think about, uh, how do people think about, um, fashion or apparel or where they're going to be buying things from or, um, or in the fitness context, how will people be consuming fitness? And, And so if you can't establish yourself as a thought leader, you're not likely to be someone that's going to inspire either investors or employees. And you're not likely to be someone who can pivot. So what I tell people is you need to develop a macro thesis about what you're doing that's bigger than you. Some of the most effective Mm -hmm. financing pitches I've ever delivered where, where I've been able to go in to a venture capitalist and say, let me paint you a picture of how I think the world is going to look in the future. Yeah. You may or may not believe at the end of this pitch that my company will be the one that will be pioneering in that future. But if I can't convince you of what the future looks like, I'm certainly not going to be able to convince you of my role in the future. Mm. And one other thing, I'm not a believer that entrepreneurs, um, are what I would call but for in the context of revolutionizing a space. So what do I mean by that? It's not like but for Bill Gates, we would not have a desktop, a computer on every desktop. It's not like but for Steve Jobs, we wouldn't have smartphones. It's not like but for Elon Musk, we wouldn't have electric cars. They accelerate those opportunities. But they would exist in the absence of them. Maybe not as fast, maybe not in the way that that they materialize, but Mm. they would exist in the absence of them. So if you're an entrepreneur, it would be great to say, well, let me tell you, I see a future where there is smartphones. I see a future where there are electric cars. I see a future where there are computers on every desktop. And then you're able to talk about, well, let me tell you the role that I will play in that future. And that's what I mean by thought leadership. That's good. Do you feel as though some founders might not feel that they are in a position to be a thought leader because when we think of thought leaders we think of you know the Gary V's of the world everybody is capable of being a thought leader Mm. everybody is capable of being a thought leader right no matter what stage you're at you can be everybody is if you're not capable of being a thought leader you shouldn't be an entrepreneur every not everybody is as articulate as everyone else yeah but thought leadership I mean Gary Vaynerchuk is very effective at being inspirational to his audiences. Yeah. But nobody can be a thought leader in every single vertical. Right. And he may have the ability to get smart quickly in a vertical. Mm, Right. But what entrepreneurs should be focused on is being smarter than everyone else in the specific sand pit in which they're playing, sandbox in which they're playing. Yeah. And so the way you do that is you read everything you can about that space. Yeah. You interact with everyone you know who's involved in that space. But then you have to form a perspective. Yeah. And if you can't form a perspective, then it's just not that you don't have any business being an entrepreneur. You know, I think, you know, the guy who's a pool cleaner is an entrepreneur. Like that is a you know, and and he's figured out how to out market um, or outsell his competitors. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you can have a, a restaurant and be an entrepreneur. But if you're interested in being a internet or a digital entrepreneur where you're looking to build a product that could be widely available worldwide yeah you have to be a thought leader it's it, it, it's 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 non it's a non-negotiable yeah. right starting yeah. point it's yeah. it's table stakes and, and, if, and you have to think of yourself as a thought leader and you have to begin to talk like a thought leader. You need to be, to be able to be informed about what's going on and then offer a perspective that's about where things are going to go. I think that's interesting. Have a perspective. You need to have a perspective. Yeah. It's, it's not optional. Like yeah. it's, it's not, you know, by the way, I'm a great technologist or I'm a great marketer. Or I'm a great seller, but I don't really have a perspective about the future. Yeah. And your perspective can't just be about your business. I mean, it, it, it's a really effective exercise to say, Assume I never start a business. Assume my business fails. Mm. My perspective needs to persist. Yeah. Needs to make sense in the absence of my business. It can't only make sense 
the only way there's going to be a social network is if I start one. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but I feel as though that's what some startup founders need to say or when they're pitching. You have to come across as though this is what's going to happen in the world and only I am uniquely qualified to solve this problem. I mean, that's what we're told to say. <laughs> but, so that's what we're told to say. But, but that's crazy, right? Yeah, of I course. Mean, it's absurd. I mean, yeah. that's crazy. You're not the only one who's uniquely qualified to solve the problem. You're not the one who's... who's uniquely uh, was, was the only one who's thinking about the problem. Mm. I mean, what you have to say, and by the way, the problem that you describe is going to change. Mm. So what you have to say is not only am I a thought leader today, but I will continue to be a thought leader over time. I will yeah. be able to absorb this other information and be a thought leader about how this is emerging. And then what's, what would make you successful as an entrepreneur is I will execute faster against this than anyone yeah. else. Right. But this idea that I'm the only one to think of something is absurd. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever said that. I mean, I think that's, I just think that's absurd. You yeah. know, it's like, I'm the only one who's ever thought of this and I'm the only one, I, I mean, I, I like to think maybe I can articulate it more clearly than, right. than anyone else or that I can execute faster than anyone else. But I'm the only one who had this thought. I mean, I think, uh, I think most audiences would think that's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, I think that's a nice place to, to end right there. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Andrew. Uh, where can people find you? Um, you can find me uh, uh, predicting our future and Andrew's roadmaps. Um, you can tweet at me, uh, Andrew's roadmaps, or you can even email me, awinerich, um, at Andrew's roadmaps. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. Just want to say another massive thank you to Andrew for doing the show and to WeWork for providing the meeting room. As always, guys, I like to give you my top three key takeaways after every show and then you guys can tweet me yours. So number one, when fundraising, find investors who have invested in your space previously as it will save a lot of time and energy and it will definitely increase your chances of getting a check. So find startups that are in your space, look at who invested in them and then go from there. Number two, Write a business plan for yourself so you can see if you have the discipline to go through the obvious steps of starting a startup. It also gives you a clear vision about what next steps look like. It's easy to forget about the small things that are going to happen, so it's key to have them written out from the beginning. And finally, become a thought leader in your space. Andrew said that you should develop a micro about your industry and you should be able to articulate what you believe the future will look like. This is non-negotiable by the way guys. If you want to convince anyone to work with you or buy from you, it's imperative that you have an opinion and that you can stand by it. As always guys, thank you so much for listening and if you haven't yet subscribed, please subscribe on iTunes at Startup Hand Me Downs. We're on SoundCloud and Stitcher. We're also on Twitter at Startup HMD and Instagram at Startup Hand Me Downs. Until next time guys, keep grinding and I'll see you soon.